and you're listening to Funshack. I'm Ross Butler, and today I'm speaking with Hendrik Brandis, co-founder and partner at Early Bird Venture Capital, one of Europe's best-known early-stage venture capital firms, with offices in Munich, Berlin, and Istanbul. Hendrik is on the board of several very high-growth startups, including SimScale, Aven, and Icer Aerospace. Hendrik is also an ardent supporter of European venture capital in general, and I think he makes a very convincing case. Hendrik, it's so nice to see you again. It's been too long. Catch me up on how things have been and uh, and how this year has been in particular for you and for Early Bird. Hello, hello, Russ, and uh, thank you very much for inviting me. I'm so glad to see you again and to have the opportunity to talk to you. Without any doubts, year 2020 will remain in our memories as a very special year. First of all, we've seen uh, people suffering uh, health-wise. We've seen business suffering. Was it very challenging year in the overall context. I must say, if I now take it personally, so I'm personally healthy and uh, my family is healthy. And the same thing applies to early bird. We uh, have seen um, surprisingly good resilience within the portfolio to the impact of COVID-19. We have actually lost one company in the context uh, of COVID-19 out of a portfolio of more than 60 companies. We have a number of companies uh, which were even more on the beneficiary side of the COVID-19 impact. We had some landmark exits this year. And what is standing out is the sale of Peak Games to Zynga for $1.9 billion um, back in June. That has led to the largest single distribution we ever did to our LP. So we distributed this year more than half a billion. Um, and, and we had two more exits. Uh, one distribution just made a week ago and another will come as a Christmas present, uh, I think on 21st of December. So the, the year was for early bird and its portfolios well, the fantastic year it was actually the best year in our history. That, that's amazing. Yeah, this this uh, virus and the lockdowns, it seems to have hit old industry companies and industries a lot harder. I, su- I suppose the tech industry in general is always going to be better insulated or even a beneficiary. Yeah, I mean, if you look at numbers, um, the um, in, in, if, you, if you distinguish between the industries um, who are benefiting and those who are suffering, and go through um, the uh, the public stock market, and then you'll find that um, the exposure of the venture industry to those sectors um, who have come up with a positive stock performance in the course of 2020, uh, so the beneficiaries, um, the exposure of the venture industries to these sectors is on average 70%. So that already suggests that the industry at large should be rather on the but the positive side and the bright side um, on the developments and on the negative side. And if I now boil it down to early bird in particular, our exposure has been um, 76 point something percent. So we are even overly exposed to the benefiting sectors, which is also then reflected by the both um, NAV performance as well as um, DPI or, or cash distribution performance based on exits uh, we could come up with uh, during the year. What about capital deployment? Did you uh, pull on the reins a little bit during 2020? 
We actually um, um, stepped a little bit on the gas. We deployed um, almost 50% more than in 2019. In 2019, we deployed some 75 million. This year, we deployed 120. It's been so long since we've last spoken. I see you now have um, a, a fund that looks east and a fund that looks west and a, and a healthcare fund. We started that strategy back in 2012 and decided for a um, special structure. And that decision was governed by the idea that in the early stage business, which is in our DNA, that's, that's where the name stands for and where we had our greatest successes and where we want to be. In the early stage business, it is very decisive to be close to the entrepreneur, to be close to the ecosystems, and to be able to take agile in, in an agile way to, to, to take quick decisions and also to make in place um, adverse bets. And if you think about these targets, which I think are decisive for successful early stage business, all these targets benefit from small entities, from small decision taking bodies close and um, to the yeah, ecosystems close to the early stage entrepreneurs. And we, we therefore consciously decided against one monolithic, large, highly diversified funds, many regions, many technologies, late and early altogether, managed centrally out of London, Berlin, wherever. And we said, it's probably, a good idea to split that up and come up with a family of funds with, um, if you want, a fleet of uh, speedboats um, linked together, realizing the economies of scale with respect to sector expertise, network, uh, admin functions. But on the fund level, when it comes to investment, um, yeah, in the placement of uh, bets as we do it in the early stage, they, and also divestment decisions, they act totally independently. And th this structure, I think, has proven to be pretty successful. And it has given us access to deals and opportunities we might have missed otherwise. Think about UiPath as the currently single most successful investment in our portfolio. Our um, Digital East partners, and namely here Dan Lupo being a Romanian partner, met the founder Daniel Dines in a very early stage in Bucharest. And he chased him and convinced him to take the first million from early bird. Would that ever happen out of Berlin with a set of German partners, local German partners, would we ever have intended respective tech events in Bucharest? Never. And so we've been close to the ecosystems in Eastern Europe. We've been locals and we are locals there. And Dan was able to build a personal relationship to Daniel, which actually enabled us to do the very first investment in UiPath. Tremendous success. And there are many more examples. And, and another thought here, the larger decision-taking bodies get, the more likely it is that you end up 
with more mainstream investments because you're looking for consensus in a larger partner group even though if you do not vote unanimously it is enough if there is a, a competent partner sitting in that investment committee and voicing his concerns and it will more often lead to decline investment than it would lead to that situation if that partner wouldn't be even in that committee. And the larger the committee gets, the more, more likely it is that there's somebody, there is somebody that who, who has concerns. And, you know, frankly speaking, there is no early stage venture investment where you, um, where, where are not good reasons to have uh, concerns. There, if it would be so clear that this is going to be the next uh, unicorn, every Buddy and his dog would invest in, in that opportunity, but it's not clear. So there are good reasons to have concerns. And the larger the body, the decision-taking body is, um, the more concerns you will hear. And the less likely um, it will be that you take courageous conviction uh, decisions. So um, I think this decentralized structure, specialized and close to the ecosystems with small agile investment committees um, acting fast, courageously, um, being willing to place outsized bets has paid off and we are very happy with that structure and we will continue to manage it in that way. We have um, our, I think the two largest offices are Istanbul and Berlin and uh, in the second step then Munich. Mm. We are in the Netherlands, um, we um, are in Switzerland, um, in, in Romania, as said before. So we, we are pretty far split out um, and that allows us to stay, yeah, as I said, close to the ecosystems, to, close to the clusters and um, close to the entrepreneurs, which is probably the most important thing. So I completely agree with, um the way you couch the nature of entrepreneurial situations. Having taken a few risks of my own recently, there's always far more reasons not to do something than to do something when you're yeah. dealing with uncertainty. Um, but that's not the nature of the game. So, and, and so, so it sounds like you have separate investment committees for each. Yes, totally, yeah, totally, totally separate, totally separate, uh, totally independent. We have an investment committee for health we have an investment committee for Digital East, Eastern European Digital Investments, and we have an investment committee for Digital West. And so you're only um, in the West? And I'm only in the investment committee of Digital West. I have absolutely no influence what my partners are deciding to invest in health or in Digital East and vice versa. Where we meet then again is what we have introduced is um, what we call the Growth Opportunity Fund. This is a layer above all three early stage funds, which has the charter to pick up what we call the proven winners out of each portfolio at the stage where the respective early stage fund has reached its end of allocation. And we still obviously own subscription rights and we know or we own a lot of knowledge. We really understand the opportunities because we have possibly accompanied these companies for many years. And we have a probably superior judgment of the risk reward ratio in that situation based on that knowledge. 
So we think we have an unfair competitive advantage in picking the best companies out of our own portfolio to provide follow-on funding in the growth stage. That is the charter of the Growth Opportunity Fund. This is actually, the current fund is already in its fourth generation. So we, we, we have done that since quite a while. And um, the pretty successful returns are impressive. Um, fund run times are much shorter because the companies are already in the later stage. It runs six years instead of 10 years. And um, this investment committee is comprised out of senior partners from each individual fund stream. So there the health and the digital East and digital West partners again meet to decide jointly which are the best bets throughout the entire early bird portfolio, regardless out of which technology and region they have evolved. And I guess there's a bit of uh, built-in independence there insofar as you see, we see, you're starting to see some private equity firms um, uh, trading assets between their own funds, but using the same investment committee, but your growth fund, fund it sounds like, has a, has a blend of people from across the two smaller funds, and therefore you've got people that are very attached to the asset, but you'll have other people that are not attached to the asset and able to make a, uh, a decision. Exactly. The, um, given our structure, that we have an investment committee uh, which need to decide unanimously, also the Growth Opportunity Fund, and it's comprised out of all existing fund streams. And um, as a matter of fact, a certain investment can only stem from one of the three fund streams. So um, the other two fund streams need to be enthusiastic about that opportunity to the same extent as the partner coming from um, that fund stream, representing that fund stream in, um, in the growth opportunity fund. So there is a, the incentives are pretty clear. We have further said that we always need a 30% share of an outside investor setting the price so that we do not come even into the, um, um, in, 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 the, in, the, in the proximity of uh, negotiating with ourselves. Yeah. Well, it sounds like a really neat structure to get around the problem that it takes longer than the typical LP fund sometimes to build a, a, great, a great business. It sounds like early bird is having his breakfast and maybe it's lunch and dinner as well. Yeah, it, it, it is a bit so. And um, the typical pattern is that these companies are becoming good visibility and the follow-on rounds are oversubscribed before they're really announced. We as insiders obviously have our parata right. And in earlier days where we didn't have that growth opportunity fund, we just, I mean, had to give away these parata rights for nothing. And it started off by um, actually our LPs approaching us and saying, guys, you do have these parada rights. I'm an LP in your, in your fund. You cannot follow on. Why don't you hand that over to us? And we said, yeah, that's, that's a fair point. Why don't we do it? We do it. And this is how it started off. And then we've, we, we, we found out that in, in some situations, that process of handing that over was simply too slow. Because when, especially in the very successful cases, when the distribution of the round is done and everybody um, uh, um, yeah, shouts out here, we're doing it, um, and, and you're fighting for your, for your share in the round, then you have to be very committed and very quick. 
and this is with these indirect structures not possible. So we said, okay, we have to have it under our own control to 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 be a player in these in this game, and that was actually the initiation of thought to 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 build this new growth opportunity layer above the three early stage funds, and that has worked pretty well. I see also that you've got some kind of partnership with Draper Esprit. It actually goes back to an old friendship of um, um, the founder of Draper Esprit, Simon Cook, and uh, who I know since many, many years. Um, and I think very highly of him. He's not anymore in the, in the active leadership of Draper Esprit, uh, but uh, when we said we're, we're trying to, to, to support each other in a, in a form of a strategic partnership. We, we exchanging information with respect to some growth opportunities we see and we may have in our portfolio and vice versa. Draper Esprit is talking about some early stage opportunities which might be suitable for early bird. It is a the, the very friendly close strategic cooperation, but nothing more. So let's talk a little bit about the uh, the portfolio. Perhaps is there anything uh, looking particularly worth following and watching that you're feeling good about? Today, you may or may not have seen it. We announced the Series B of uh, Easy Aerospace. Mm. Um, it's an exciting company, especially for me, since I'm an aerospace engineer by training. It's a long way back, I know, but still, um, my heart is beating for aerospace industry. And we had the opportunity to lead the Series A um, almost exactly uh, 12 months back. We now closed Series B, 75 million, it's probably the largest um, European space round ever, as far as I know. Maybe I'm mistaken, but I, I'm not aware of any larger round in, in, in that space. When we, when we invested in, in the Series A a year ago, there were basically two major um, risks or milestones um, yeah, to be achieved to make it a, a successful investment. One is obviously the rocket has to fly at some, some stage, um, rather sooner than later, but it has to fly. So technologically, there's a re risk that it um, uh, might be difficult. Um, and the other thing is we, we have to be able to provide sufficient funding that um, the rocket even gets to the point where it can prove to fly. So um, when we invested a year back, the question was, is it possible for such a special venture case? It's special, it's hardware, it's, it's, it's capital intensive, it's everything, but you do not like too much in, in, in venture capital. Are we, are we going to be able to provide um, the, the 75 million full-on funding which is needed to carry them into first commercial launch? Surprisingly, um, the sentiment turned very much to the positive. So first, I think space is increasingly viewed as one yeah, new innovation platform for the decade to come. Space is definitely platform technology as cloud computing is one or AI is one or um, whatever. Yeah? So it is, it, is a, it is a platform which will be used for lots of innovation and many new applications and startups. Can you give us an example or two? Many, I mean, just if you, if you think about um, provisioning of internet or even telecom services, um, since space, usage is, is, is different. We were talking about predominantly about lower orbit. 
So uh, traditional satellites are flying in 20,000 kilometers high or geostationary, it's even 36,000 kilometers in height. So they're very far away with respective uh, uh, implications on, on latencies and um, travel time for signals, makes it slow and devices spike, etc. Lower orbit applications, uh, we're talking about a height of on average 500 kilometers. That's not far, yeah? This is, I mean, this is, I don't know, the width of England. In order to cover Earth, you then need um, uh, swarms of satellites, but they're all very close. It's a little bit like like base stations um, um, to provide um, 5G services. And um, I think a picture is good, if you can imagine that these base stations go you know, one level up. And as a consequence of that, you need, you need a multiple times less base stations to cover the Earth. Um, even more so since the satellites are moving and moving pretty fast. So they surrounding um, the Earth in 90 minutes in the lower orbit. So they're flying pretty fast. You need a couple of thousand, maybe 1,500, 2,000, I don't know, um, satellites to provide 5G coverage of the entire Earth. So this would then mean that there um, not infinite number of people who can use that service at the same point of time, but you will have 5G services at every rural area, how remote it can be, yeah? even in the midst of the Atlantic or the North Pole. And the cost of such a, such a 5G satellite swarm would be 5 billion. So that would probably be the cost of uh, the lower part of England uh, for um, 5G base stations. Yeah. So the efficiency goes, or another example, take, take the example of autonomous driving and the importance of um, very powerful um, positioning systems. If you take the traditional GPS based on satellites and 20,000 kilometers in height, you have to be very accurate to come to um, probably a positioning close to one meter. This is very difficult, but it's, that's a physical limit you can achieve. If you go to lower orbit, you can achieve accuracy as of one centimeter. And if you now think about autonomous driving, and, um, 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 and, and navigating on the street, um, it, a meter does make a huge difference, a centimeter not. Agriculture um, observation, sensing differences, um, how plants are growing, uh, who might, where might, might be difficulties in identifying patterns, um, also uh, weather observation. So there's almost infinite number of um, new applications which become possible because of the fact that we're now talking low orbit. So this is amazing. I, I did see that release. Now, now, didn't one of the founders have something to do with Hyperloop? It's, um, it's interesting because, I mean, as you know, my office is here in, in Munich and um, I grew out of the Technical University of Munich. And this is um, a very reputable university with respect to aerospace. So actually the um, origination of um, the, the first rocket engines um, came out of Technical University of, 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 of Munich. It, it, it has retained its uh, deep knowledge and expertise in that area. So uh, the technical, the students of Technical University had frequently would have participated in the Hyperloop competition from Elon Musk in, uh, in Silicon Valley and won that actually for um, uh, several times in a row. And one of the founders 
um, Josef Fleischmann, his name, was um, uh, in one of the teams uh, who twice won that um, Hyperloop competition in a row. And then they um, um, recombinated and um, uh, they formed the founders team of, of ESA Aerospace and used all what they learned, the competence and everything. And back in 2018 only, and decided to, to start a rocket company. And we looked at it in, in, the, in the seed stage. I was excited, I was enthusiastic, but I was also scared by the very high ambition and they, they have put forward. And we couldn't really get comfortable in placing an, a, seat, a seat ticket here. So we remained in touch um, and they met or even overachieved every milestone they set out um, in the course of the seat round uh, when they reached out to Series A. And that was then the stage where we got finally comfortable and decided to lead the Series A together with Airbus Ventures. Will it be a final success? I think the jury is out. The key milestone is, uh, will the rocket fly? Yeah, that would help. Yeah, I mean, I mean that would definitely help. <laughs> I mean, we should, we, should, we should be about the fact that um, uh, rockets uh, in their first launch um, have a risk of 50% um, to not fly successfully. Um, SpaceX is uh, being the most valuable um, rocket company globally right now has needed, uh, I think, three failures in a row before the first Falcon successfully launched. So um, we should be prepared to overcome um, a failure or two uh, before we will we finally see a successful launch. This is in the nature of this rocket science. Um, building a rocket first time right is something which is a special challenge and is probably as unlikely as a, as a, as a I don't know, a new ASIC, um, which has been launched in this first time, right? Yeah, well, I was really excited to see it, I guess because of that, because space is normally the preserve of billionaires, you know, Branson and Musk and so on. And the idea that you can go to, uh, go to a venture capital firm with an idea and actually get funded for it. I, now I realize it's still the exception, not the rule, but even so, um, it's exciting to see. It is in the, in not a mainstream investor. Uh, this is for sure, and this is what you're what you're pointing out. And it is a relatively capital-intensive play. So up to now, there are close to 100 million which have went into this um, venture. And the true technological risk is only slightly smaller than it was initially, because only at the very end we will know whether this is working. If we have the stamina to really um, yeah, go through to one, two failures as well, and I think we will have it, um, likelihood of success is very, very high because at the end of the day, rocket and rocket engine technology is a pretty well-known field. Mm. And the last point I'd like to point out is um, it was um, encouraging for me to see that this round was solely funded by European money and even predominantly German growth money in this case. And um, this gives me the sense that finally our venture industry in Europe is starting to come of age. Mm. We were suffering for decades from the fact that, first of all, we didn't have sufficient early stage money, then that situation 
improved. I would not say it was healed, but it was significantly significant improved. And then we were suffering from the fact that the later stage of the growth money wasn't there because the funds were simply small. And we now see a trend where also outside uh, or other ad, you know, adverse bets, but, but, but not mainstream bets like either our space with a significant capital need can be funded purely with European money. And this, I think, is, is very, very encouraging and this is new. Well, that, that's really great news. Is it, I mean, is there the kind of the reverse threat now, which is that it sounds like Europe has its house in order to a degree, but um, outside of Europe, there are this, these, well, a couple of, without naming names, colossal funds uh, earmarked for global venture capital that can distort rounds and distract entrepreneurs with huge amounts of money. Is that distorting or disrupting your hunting ground? Not really, to be honest. It's more as a corporation and as a complementary service they provide as because they can provide bold bets, significant amounts, which are hardly to, to be found in Europe. If, if a 3 billion fund plays a 30 million bet, it's just 1% of the fund, yeah? And it can be easily decided. Maybe they don't even need a unanimously vote of all partners. If I manage a 300 million fund and I place a 30 million bet, I'm placing 10% of my assets and I wanna do, I don't know, a portfolio of 20, this will hardly go through. So the, the inferior size of venture funds in Europe, I think is a problem is a problem for the tech infrastructure and is a problem for um, managing uh, the transition of great technological bases into globally leading tech companies. And if I then come back to the example of UiPath, which has consumed up to a good billion dollars in venture funding, nobody would be surprised to, to know that only the very small minority of that billion did come from Europe. We have to think about as Europeans that we do need to have pools of capital, which are in, in a competitive size to what we see outside of Europe, because otherwise we have to accept the fact that the very best companies will probably be um, funded outside of Europe, the majority of ownership will go outside of Europe and finally headquarters will go outside of Europe as it happened with UiPath, by the way. Um, headquarter in the meantime, even it's a pure European technology funded and, uh, and founded and funded in Romania, headquarters now in New York. I think UiPath has potential to really become very 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 big company it's a it's it's leading a new software category uh, on a global basis and i must say i find it regrettable if i read um in, in newsrooms the message that uh, the us-based company uipath has done this or that and i say guys um it's it's really sad this is um, this is a european plant it's european technology it's european originated this has been forgotten and why is it for forgotten it has been forgotten because um funding was to a large extent unlike subcritical which has could could have come from europe mm -hmm. and obviously um the proximity 
to the US market in terms of customers has also played a role. So European ventures in a kind of a very fairly unusual situation in economics, whereby it sounds like if it increased its funds under management, you could reasonably expect returns to rise rather than fall. Because you're, it sounds like it's yeah. subcritical. I, I, I couldn't agree more. I, I, I think so. I must say, in the course of my venture career, which is almost um, 24 years now, 23 and a bit, I have seen a number of companies which have turned out to be medium successful, where I must say these companies have been at the core, at the right time um, of new technology innovations, but they have always remained undercapitalized, mm. as opposed to their US-based counterparts who didn't, who were quite frequently not earlier and technology-wise not better, but they were significantly better capitalized. And then, at some stage, um, if you're if there's a rat race and you're head-on, um, there's the power of the buck. If you have ten times more capital, um, likelihood of success is significantly higher, and that is regrettable to see. By the way, the flip side of the scarce capital is. Um, that the performance in the meantime of European venture capital is very, very good. And obviously this goes back to the situation that a 300 million fund can be, you know, a 5X on a 300 million fund is much easier than the 5X on the 3 billion fund. Yeah, sure. So do you want to mention anything uh, in the portfolio that's perhaps slightly lower down the risk spectrum? We. Uh, always have been pretty exposed to Finn and Shortech. Yeah. But we're also engaged in the in the area of a new mobility, some direct-to-consumer plays. And um, there's some some interesting things coming up. And um, yeah, I must say I'm I'm optimistic. It's not every company we are invested in will be successful. This is in the nature of the business. But on the other hand side, um, it is good to see that, yeah, at the end of the day, every fund um, really don't only need one outlier. And if we have two or three of them, then it's just, I mean, fantastic. Think about a company like Ivan, which we invested um, uh, two years ago, which have, in the meantime, probably is, um, we have an investment multiple, um, I don't know, 30x on it. Um, uh, so it's. Um, Which one was that? Sorry? That's a Finnish company, Ivan. It is great to see that not only, you know, I was saying that, that not only the venture scene, but also the entire venture and startup ecosystem is increasingly coming of age. So the quality of deal opportunity we see are definitely on average. Um, much superior than what we saw five years ago and even more so than what we saw 10 years ago. So in a sense, um, with the growing size of the business, there are multiple reasons why returns should should grow and why our profession, I intentionally not call it a business, uh, um, becomes more profitable and easier. So. Um, we were talking about the increasing amounts of follow-on capital 
to, 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 to let us participate um, in, uh, to a larger extent in the true winners. Second, what we see is um, we see a higher quality um, of the entrepreneurs, of the teams. We see more repeat entrepreneurs. The larger the ecosystem gets, it's like a cluster. Yeah, the, This is self-reinforcing cycle. And that again then help the venture funds to show better or good returns, which attract then even more money. So I do um, sense a very, very positive momentum, despite the fact that we're in the middle of the pandemic, uh, very positive momentum for the ecosystem, for the industry, and also for early bird in particular. I have a little bit of a hypothesis as well. And this struck me when I was looking at your, um, your portfolio which is that to some degree innovation begets innovation. So the obvious thing is yeah. that the internet, but your portfolio, I, I can see that, you know, there's, there's, there's like tools to facilitate technical creation, whether it's, you know, simulations or, or, simulator yeah. or, or whatever it is. Um, and that's a very important point, what you're making. I think um, this goes along with the, or that, that drives a much higher scalability of businesses in our way. So, um, I mean, m m obvious thing is just, I mean, the, um, the advent of the internet, yeah? having global accessibility, be it information, be it information exchange, be it even distribution in sales, um, that's something which is definitely uh, helping to companies to scale faster. If you think about blockchain um, transactions, um, in the ability to, to, to close um, secure transactions on a global basis. You were talking about simulation. Yeah? We have that investment SimScale, which allows to design prototypes and, and sort of design products without having uh, the need to build prototypes because you can simulate basically the entire technical behavior, which is much more efficient and faster. It leads to, to better outcome because you can do more iterations digitally than you could do physically. It, it, it obviously accelerates everything. And I can go on and on. So and what we observe is that the scalability of tech businesses is multiple times higher than it used to be. And then that is the intrinsic reason why valuations paid for um, tech businesses which have proven uh, its scalability are so much higher than everything what we are used uh, to see. And if you now think about what that means for our industry, this is an enormous afterburner for our performance because in the first place, business in itself uh, are scaling quicker. So they create, even if I apply the traditional multiples, everything is, 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 is accelerated. I mean, um, variation creation of um, um, more than 10 billion in less than five years are, have been unthinkable 10 years ago. Today, I can name you a number of examples, both in the US and in Europe, where this is taking place or has taken place. And then on top of that, you have um, the anticipation of investors of this higher scalability, 
which encourages them to pay um, to do a forward pricing, yeah, to pay um, higher prices even earlier, so increase the multiples. Mm. So um, what we're seeing is um, um, you can either is it a shrinkage of holding periods, or we just I mean we see a much much higher um, value creation in every individual deal in the same period of time. And I think this increasing scalability of, of tech businesses are the root cause for the increased performance in venture capital. This is where all goes back to. Do you want to tell me briefly about Vision Labs? I saw that on your website. I thought it looked interesting. Yeah. The discussion of immigrants have, has been omnipresent, uh, especially in Germany for the past years after the famous um, quote of Mrs. Merkel in 2015, which has led um, to a significant stream of incoming uh, refugees. And I think we all share the responsibility to help these people to get best integrated. And um, obviously different people can provide and contribute different things, but uh, what our profession is and what our um, competence is to to support individuals, teams, on their way from idea to entrepreneurship and order to, to, be, to become a successful entrepreneur. And we felt if that's our competence, let's try to contribute our share in, for the integration of, of immigrants and by helping them to, yeah, to, um, to create their idea, to launch their idea and to, to let that, to, to, yeah, to keep that idea going. So um, that has led then to the Vision Lab program where we lined up with a number of wonderful partners who all agreed to provide their services on a pro bono basis, starting with Bain um, um, and consultancy, continuing with Google uh, helping with online services. Um, and we, we, we're partnering up with um, some media company, Handelsblatt Media Group, which is big in Germany, with Hering Schuppner as communication agency. We have Pellet and Partner as a partner here as, 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 um, as um, lawyers helping um, the, um, the immigrants to set up their the, the startups, as I said, everything is free of charge. And on top of that, we we felt that we need to have to provide also some liquidity because many of these people um, simply uh, do not have any reserves. They need something where they can live from. So we raised um, um, the first um, Vision Lab fund, um, no management fee, no carry, um, which uh, um, provides, if you want, grants it's not really grand because we, we do get some some potential share in the business if, 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 if for the fund, but um, it, it provides um, support um, to latent um, migrant teams and getting some not much in the first place twenty five thousand euros, but it it helps them to free up their mind and uh, be fully dedicated for six months or six month program with a structured program. Uh, to which we'd like to run them through and help them to get from idea to, to launch in, in six months. But they can only concentrate 
um, if they have something to bite, and uh, this is what we what we provide. And um, so we start now with the first batch as of January first, uh, first ten teams. And um, I can't tell you to what that is going to lead. I'm I'm very happy that uh, we 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 got all the past partners aligned. We got the funding. Most of the funding actually comes from uh, my partners and myself here in, 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 um, um, at Early Bird. So I'm very grateful that my partners um, are willing to, to, to put in some money in order to, to, to get that initiative going. And we will see. And um, if it's going well, we, we're hoping um, um, that we can spread out the news and we find uh, some more investors uh, willing to contribute and even more partners to, 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 to bring a little scale into it. Well, Hendrik, that just that sounds wonderful. You know, well, well done for the for the initiative. You know, helping people to help themselves. There's nothing more positive than that. So uh, I didn't realize how new it was. So good luck with it, I guess. Thank you very much. Brilliant. Well, it's been really great talking with you, Hendrik. In fact, can I uh, mention something that we're launching? Sure, please do so. Um, uh, we're in, in a day or so. So it'll be out by the time this is released. We're launching something called the Value Creators. Um, so we've set up this tech platform um, whereby you, you go on, you punch in the name of someone you work with. It could be someone in your firm or some you know, external advisor, someone in the venture capital ecosystem on the transaction side rather than the entrepreneurs. And it's someone that's done a really great job. Perhaps they don't get a huge amount of recognition otherwise, but they've really contributed to the value creation process. And all you do is you put their name in and you say, you know, you've done a great job in 2020. You know, it's been a difficult year, but you're a star then we quickly check consent with that person to make sure that they're okay being publicly praised because they might, might be shy. And if they are, um, we send you a prompt to post that on LinkedIn and then other people can agree, add their own comments. Yes, they really did do a fantastic job. Like, like, and that's it. And then at the end of the process, which will run until mid-February, um, FunShack will aggregate all of the value creators um, in the venture capital world and they might be, you know, well-known figures like you, Hendrik, but they might be, you know, people really in the back office that don't so often get a mention and we'll, and we'll give, you know, make a little bit of a fuss of them. And then maybe people that get lots of, you know, likes or endorsements, uh, we might try and, you know, do something with them on the show or something like that. But it's called The Value Creators. I'll send you the link. It's vc.fundashack.com and see if you want to get involved. Cool. Thank you very much. I'm looking forward to that. Great. Well, Hendrik, really, really great catching up with you and uh, uh, won't leave it so long next time. Okay. Thank you so much and all the best to you, Ross. And thank you again for inviting You've been listening to the Fundshack podcast. Make sure you subscribe and visit our website at fund-shack.com for many more video interviews. It's the private capital channel for alternative